And our uh, scripture reading today, if you want to use the Pew Bible, is found on page 898. And we are back in the book of John in our sermon series, John 12, verses 1 through 15. And also, if you're a guest or you don't have your own personal Bible, if you want to take that one home, you're welcome to do that as a gift from us. Okay, John 12, verses 1 through 15. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, good morning, Christ Community Church. My name is Dakota. I am one of the pastors here, and I am so glad to be with you all on this first day of the year. Um, It's a little echoey. It's all right. Uh, we had this issue, I think, last, last week with Christmas, but we'll, we'll, we'll keep going. Uh, so um, I just want to add again uh, my welcome and uh, my joy that we have everyone here together for this Sunday, that um, for this one service, we have all of our kids upstairs, and there's going to be wiggles, and there's going to be squeals, and we love that. We love it. So uh, kids, thank you for hanging out with us this morning. And uh, parents, please do not worry about any of those things. The, the squeals, we, we welcome it and love that we're all here worshiping. So I am going to try to keep us going, however, so let me pray and we'll jump in. Does that sound good? Okay, let's pray. Lord, God, we pause to just welcome you. We know that you are already here with us. God, you've brought us through this year, and you have um, given us your mercies that are new every morning. Um, God, thank you for everyone here in this room. God, for bringing your people together to hear your word. Just pray that you would speak to our hearts, that we would be encouraged by your spirit. Um, 
and led by you in this time. God, we love you. We thank you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So who's jumping into the new year just filled up and ready to go and take on the world? Anyone? You know that old cultural adage, new year, new you. How's that going for everyone? You know, people sometimes do crazy things, right, in this new year to kick it off, to feel like it's kind of set apart and different, like stay up until midnight, which is just insane <laughs> for me as a, a two-year-old. Anyways, uh, how would you feel if you were doing something like this? All right. So I was there, actually. That was January 1st, 2011. That was the polar bear swim, the annual polar bear swim, where people would get together and jump into this almost freezing cold river uh, and swim across to mark off the new year. Um, In this new year, do you feel like that? (laughs) You feel like you could just take on anything, like my 12 years ago self, just jump straight into the freezing cold of this new year and emerge on the other side, a changed person. Or maybe you feel more like this. This is uh, at a low point, like I was. This was during last year's Advent, so 2021, when my jaw got locked open at the dentist. And I sat there for hours. And then I drove myself to the ER, drooling, in a thunderstorm, and I just really ended the year with a bang, right? (laughs) Well, at the start of this year, I definitely still feel more like that second person, right? My 12 years ago self has run into the reality of my last year self, and after sicknesses this year and health issues and sleeplessness, I'm just tired. I'm tired and beat up, and I'm not at all ready for a new year, new me. Just kind of sounds exhausting. So, uh, this winter season's been brutal in more ways than one. Does anyone else feel like that? So maybe you're feeling all kinds of ways, but it's New Year's Day. Today is day one of any resolutions you may have set, right? Ways we want this year to be different from last. And what motivates us to truly change our allegiances, right, from our old self to become the new self that we want to be? The problem is that our New Year's resolutions, right, they come up against our motivation, right? We can resolve to do anything that we want, but unless we actually are devoted to its surpassing worthiness compared to all the ways that we've lived before, we're going to keep giving ourselves to those old ways, to those old allegiances that we've become familiar with. This is a matter of changing allegiances. Right? What motivates us to follow a different ruler? Because when we consider something worthy to rule our life, we give ourselves wholly to it. We devote ourselves to it. So in this new year, we are beginning a new series called Behold Your King. We're getting back into John's Gospel. And in our passage this morning that we read, we meet three of Jesus' closest friends, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, people who had wholly devoted themselves to him, to his worthiness, to being with him, that these people alone were able to be ruled by him, 
which is in stark contrast to the way the religious rulers and the crowds and even the disciples were being ruled. So Jesus' friends can show us a way to live in this upcoming year, right? Not with grandiose resolutions, but with the resolve to be truly devoted to our relationship with Jesus and to welcome him into every area of our life. Might be slower and simpler than New Year, New You, but Jesus, whenever he breaks into our hearts, he's always doing a new thing. He's transforming us as we live in the reality of this rule. So today, we're going to find our friends with Jesus' friends. We're going to follow them as they lived in the reality that the only king worthy to rule your life gave his life to be with you. The only king worthy to rule your life gave his life to be with you. So in our passage in John 12, one of the first things we notice as we jump into it, especially as we read verses 9 through 11, are the crowds believing in Jesus, flocking to him because of Lazarus, because of Jesus' friend Lazarus. And this is actually something that we spent time months ago uh, in our last time in John in chapter 11, where John tells the story of Lazarus dying and then Jesus coming and raising him back to life. This was the culminating sign and a whole host of signs, right, that Jesus was doing that pointed to who he was. And Lazarus was the sign to end all signs. Right? He showed that Jesus' kingdom has power over death itself. So when Jesus brings Lazarus back to life, people begin believing in Jesus. They see something in him. Maybe he really is the king we've been waiting for. And so as Passover nears in our story, uh, actually in John 11 it goes on, Jewish pilgrims are making their way from all across the empire to Jerusalem. And as they do, questions are in the air. Is Jesus going to come? Is he going to come for Passover when all of God's people are there in King David's city? The prophets foretold that a messianic ruler would come and vanquish the people's oppressors and he would come to Jerusalem. So they're expectant. They're stirred up. They're excited. And the religious rulers are worried because this actually puts Jerusalem in danger. If a popular revolt were stirred up, it would quickly be squashed by Roman rule along with the rest of the Jewish community and its influence. And so their worries are valid. Actually, these rulers are worried, and they're valid because it actually does happen. Some 40 years later in AD 70, so archaeologists have uncovered, right, they've uncovered remains of a temple, the temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed, and you can actually go see some of these remains. These are stones from the retaining wall of the temple the Temple Mount in AD 70 that was destroyed. There was a revolt in Jerusalem, and so these worries are happening. So based on these ruins, people have actually done a reconstruction of the remains, and they've built this reconstruction of the temple. So in John 11, as Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, we see Caiaphas, who's the high priest who served in Jerusalem at the center of Jewish national and religious life, in this temple, he essentially orders 
Jesus to be murdered. These are the highest Jewish leaders murdering. Their commitment to their religious power led them to abandon their own religion's highest principles, their very own law, the Torah. So there are murderous intentions in the air, right? Things are tense. The situation is a little bit crazy, and that's where we come into our passage, right? Verses 17 through 19, we see that the world was going out to Jesus. The crowd saw something, and the leaders saw this and trembled. Because the rulers are ruled by power. These chief priests and religious leaders of the day were ruled by their fear of Rome and self-preservation. So not only do they decide that Jesus needed to die, but Lazarus, too. Any sign that Jesus' kingdom has power needed to be eliminated. Jesus was a threat And even though they saw the same evidence as everyone else, right, Lazarus was there, alive. He couldn't be allowed to stay living. They needed to preserve their own lives and livelihoods by taking others' lives. Even still, the crowds welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem as king. Right, all the crowd's questions seemed to be answered when Jesus actually does show up for the Passover. So in verse 13, you see them crying out. They say, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And then notice what happens. John, who wrote this, he doesn't correct them. He confirms what they're saying by himself quoting a messianic passage of the son from Zechariah, the prophet. Chapter 9, verse 9. So John recalls the scene, right? Jesus walks into Jerusalem, finds a young donkey, and sat on it. And then he comments, just as is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So John's saying, Jesus is the promised king. He is the king who has now come. But this king came to die. And we see in verse 16, the disciples didn't get this. They didn't get this until much, much later, and neither do the crowds, right? They're taking it into their own hands. They want a conquering king. They want to conquer the powers over them, and they want Jesus to come and restore Israel to its rightful place and to do it by force. In in reaction to these political, religious powers over them, the crowds are ruled by resentment. The crowds are ruled by resentment. This is a common cultural response in our day, in the culture wars, right? Seize power by overpowering those who have power over you. This is how cultural and social resentment brews and it boils over into violence. So James Davidson Hunter, who's a sociologist, following others, he names this reality ressentiment, which is the increasing feeling of injury, of being mistreated, disadvantaged. And he says this, ressentiment 
has become the distinguishing characteristic of politics in modern cultures. Nowhere does it find a more conducive home than among the disadvantaged or mistreated as directed against the strong, the privileged, or the gifted. But here, an important qualification. Perception is everything. It is not the weak or aggrieved per se, though it could be, but rather those that perceive themselves as such. It just means that everyone is susceptible to this. Anyone who feels marginalized culturally, whether it's the narrative of traditional values being marginalized by the coastal elites, or whether it's the narrative of socioeconomic dynamics, right, socioeconomic kind of things playing out that minoritize people's cultures and communities. And the Jewish crowds who gathered felt this. And rightfully so, they were being injured by those who ruled over them. The religious leaders were pandering to the political leaders, and they were abandoning the very laws that were in place to protect them. So this is actually part of Jesus' massive gravitational draw, both for the crowds and also for the disciples. He's the teacher, the rabbi, who's come doing these signs and miracles, showing that the time for the Messiah had come for him to establish David's kingdom. The disciples saw this just a chapter before in John 11. One of the disciples, Thomas, he is ready to follow Jesus to his death. They expected a battle, a confrontation, a power encounter. But no one expected a king on a cross. So who saw Jesus as the worthy king he really is? Only his closest friends. The people that Jesus chose to be with on his last Sabbath. Martha, Lazarus, and Mary. So rather than being ruled by power or by resentment, Jesus' friends are ruled by relationship with him. Jesus' friends are ruled by relationship with him. When all Jerusalem was working itself into a frenzy, when the chief priests were planning murder, when questions were in the air, where was Jesus? With his friends, eating dinner. And notice that Jesus brought his disciples with him, as he always did. Even on this last night before going into Jerusalem, he had something to show the disciples. And we don't get much of Jesus' inner circle, right, inner circle of 12 disciples here, but we do get Judas Iscariot's interaction with Jesus and with Mary. And on the surface, right, so the, the scene is Mary anoints Jesus' feet with this expensive ointment, and Judas is like, what's going on? You could sell this, give it to the poor. And it seems like an honorable comment, right? It even seems that Judas understands that the coming of the Messiah was always meant to coincide with good news for the poor, which is what Jesus himself teaches in Luke 4. But in reality, Judas's challenge to Mary's lavish outpouring, it betrays a lack of sincerity, a falsity. He followed Jesus as a rabbi, but only for his own gain. 
John's very clear about this. Jesus served Judas's purposes, and then he was on board. Judas profited from Jesus' success. He stole from him. But as soon as the tide seemed to turn, he would drop him. Right? He was soon going to betray his king because he didn't see a king. He only saw a teacher who did important things like serve the poor and made claims that threatened Rome's rule over Jewish life. In Jesus, Judas saw a way to advance his own kingdom, not God's. And Jesus sees right through this. Right? He challenges and corrects Judas's deceit by citing part of Deuteronomy 15, verse 11, their law, which says this, there will never cease to be poor people in the land. And this is what it goes on to say. That is why I am commanding you, open your hand willingly to your poor and needy brother in your land. Which is the opposite of what Judas was doing. He was taking. And then when Jesus defends Mary's actions by declaring, leave her alone, she has kept it for the day of my burial. Jesus pushes it a step further. He is the king who commands his people to serve the poor. He, Jesus alone, deserves our ultimate devotion. And then, as our king, his commands shape our life so that we give our lives away, just as he was about to give his life. Judas didn't understand this. He saw a rabbi who served to advance his own selfish gain until he didn't, and then Judas could drop him. The crowd saw a conqueror. The rulers saw a threat. Disciples saw a rabbi, maybe a special one, but they all misunderstood the kingdom that Jesus was bringing and the kind of king he is. The king who has power over death and whose reputation threatened the very existence of the religious elite. This king came eating and drinking and resting. He came to be with us before he came to do anything, and he came to do something so that we could be with him forever. That's what his friends understood. Maybe even more than they knew. Martha was serving. Lazarus was there reclining, just sitting and being with Jesus. Mary lavished her devotion on Jesus. These are the ideal disciples in John's story. Serving, reclining with, honoring their friend. Set in contrast to Judas's kind of self-serving falsity, it's especially Mary, right? Mary who shines the brightest. But I want to clarify something here. I could have really easily, right, made the application to this sermon, don't be a Judas, be a Mary. And it actually, I think it would be a valid application based on the way that John's overall narrative portrays these two characters. But at this point in the story, Judas's story of betrayal hasn't completely played itself out yet. John's making these comments about, about Judas and his character, looking backwards, knowing what's going to unfold. But on this last Sabbath Saturday, 
When Jesus chooses to eat with his closest friends, he brings his disciples with him, Judas included. And he doesn't send Judas away, even when he knows his underlying selfish motives, even when he knows that he's offending his friends to his face. So I'm really not interested, actually, in preaching, don't be a Judas, be a Mary. I think a better, closer application is this. When you find yourself being a Judas, realize that even then, Jesus wants to be with you. Even then, Jesus wants to be with you. And then let him help you become like Mary. Let him help you become like Mary. And frankly, that is the sermon I feel like I can preach way more honestly. I feel like Judas much more often than I feel like Mary. Every time I prepare right, to come up here and share God's word with you all, I usually, without fail, God brings me to some kind of come-to-Jesus moment. And I felt that with this. Especially, Dakota, you're Judas. Here you are, invited to come along with Jesus and his friends, communing with them, learning from them, and you're thinking about what you're getting out of it. In your heart, you question others' motives and actions. You do ministry, but you're not worshiping me as king. You're not letting my presence rest in your heart. If only you just realize how deeply I want to be with you. Come to me, Jesus says. And he says it every day. So listen to him. If Judas Iscariot had listened, he might not have become Judas the betrayer. He might have become more like Mary. So hear me on this one. Mary is truly the ultimate disciple here. And Jesus wants us to follow him as she follows him. And the twelve disciples All of the men utterly fail to see what Mary sees and what Jesus commends her for, that he is her king and worthy of all of her devotion because just being with him is worth more than anything. It's worth even God's own life given for us. So especially girls here in the room this morning, hear this. You can show the world, your parents, your friends, your teachers, even your pastors like me, that we don't have to be a Judas. We can be like Mary by seeing that just being with Jesus is worth it. And don't let anyone tell you that you cannot lead us to follow Jesus. Being with Jesus is a higher good than working for him and anything that comes from that. Being with Jesus is the best alternative to working against Jesus like the rulers. Right? As Jesus taught elsewhere, the Sabbath, the humans humans were made for the Sabbath. What does he say? He says, the Sabbath was made for us. This is 
presence with God. Jesus made the world in seven days to create the conditions for peace, for shalom, for wholeness, and ultimately for resting in his presence. This was the whole point of everything from the beginning. We see that in this meal, and I think this clip from The Chosen does an amazing job portraying this the Sabbath meal that Jesus had. Let's watch this clip. This is Jesus eats this last Sabbath dinner with his friends, and Mary showers him with devotion seven days from now. Jesus will be dead and buried in the tomb. The days of creation working backwards, the creator submitting himself to the death he never desired for his creatures. As soon as Jesus enters Jerusalem, there's no turning back. Come Friday, the rulers will have him killed. And Jesus knows this, and he will go willingly to give his life for those he's making his friends. He did this to be with you, and so that you would be with him. That is what our king is after. That's what makes him worthy of our devotion, because he considered being in relationship with you, with me, sinners that we are, worthy of his very life. The only king worthy to rule your life gave himself to be with you. He gave his life to be with you. He just wants to be by your side, resting beside him like Lazarus, serving one another beside him like Martha, pouring out your devotion in loving response to his loving rule like Mary. Like Jesus' friends, we need to behold our King and see that just being with him is worthy of our devotion. So here's our takeaway following Mary. Behold your King to be with your King. Behold your King to be with your King. Jesus is worthy not because only of what he does, but because of who he is. Jesus is our King and Savior. Even more fundamentally, he is our friend who came to die to be with us. And frankly, so that we could all be with each other, like this Sunday. And the profound reality of his withness now is that when we believe in, in him, he, in the Holy Spirit, literally comes to live inside us and reign in us. So how do we do this? How do we walk by his spirit to become the kind of people who are so ruled by our love and affection and devotion for Jesus that we pour our lives to him like Mary. Well, we can start simply enjoying being with Jesus. That's what the form.life is focusing on in this season, right? Intimacy with Jesus that forms our hearts for a life of servanthood. One of the practices that we're doing this week and every week in this journal, and it's also online, is asking God to help us pay attention to King Jesus' presence in our lives. And then to let that lead us to lovingly pay attention to those around us. So when we feel weak or distracted, we can remember that the Spirit helps us with this. Right? Jesus is with us when we pray even in our weakest, most tired, most defeated moments. I'm willing to bet that most of us haven't had a chance to get into one of these, 
this last week being after Christmas. So I'm just going to read one short paragraph from the front that introduces the focus for this season of the form life, and hopefully it'll whet your appetite to jump in with us in the weeks ahead. So grab a book if you haven't already, and open it up to that first page. And kids, you are... You can do something too. So I know Pastor Dakota has been talking for a long time. Uh, but open up to that first page. And kids, I want you to look it up. Look at that front, front page and see if you can find the crown. See if you can find the crown and then whisper to your parents, who is supposed to wear that crown? Who is the king of everything? Okay, great. So I'm just going to read this one paragraph and we'll close, all right? Jesus commands our love for one another. But this is not a task to be checked off or to record for community service hours. Our call to servanthood is a call to embody the posture of intimate mutual relationship, first with Jesus and then with one another. Our call to ministry, yes, you have a call to ministry, is to pray to pray until loving, sacrificial action flows out of a posture that treats another, even an enemy, as a friend. Friends, if we're going to be Jesus' friends, we need to cultivate intentional times just to be with Jesus. And then all of our serving and pouring out and honoring and giving to those who are in need will flow from that. A life of service flows from a posture of servanthood, which is a posture that's cultivated best in friendship and fellowship with Jesus, who is our King, who came to give himself to be a servant of all, even to the point of death. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for being our King. God, we thank you that you love us that you love um, the little quirks and particularities of us and each one of us, and you, you created us. You created our families. You created our communities. God, we want to follow you. We want to honor you as our king in all of our lives and our whole heart. So when we have a hard time doing that, Spirit, we pray that you would lead us and guide us. Give us patience and grace. Um, that are new every morning to walk with you and to walk with one another. We love you, Lord. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.